0: Welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host today, Dr. Camden Bird, and I'm an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University. I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Dr. Edward Curtis. Historian and religion scholar Edward Curtis traces his Midwestern roots to southern Illinois, where both sides of his family have lived for over a century. The author or editor of 13 books, Dr. Curtis is the William M. and Gail M. Plater Chair of the Liberal Arts at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. He is the recipient of Carnegie, Fulbright, and NEH fellowships. Today, Dr. Curtis will be talking to us about his new book, Muslims of the Heartland, How Syrian Immigrants Made a Home in the American Midwest, recently published by the New York University Press. Edward, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Camden. I'm, I appreciate the
1: invitation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I enjoyed reading your book, uh, uh, and it's very well suited for the series here, so I'm excited to share it with our listeners. Uh, starting this book, it's, it, it's very clear that this is a personal project. In fact, you open the book with a bit of an autobiography of your childhood, which the viewers just got in the introduction, as, as well as the story of your maternal grandmother, who you affectionately call Granny, uh, who helps to set up the framing of this, this larger history here. I'm always curious about the origins of a project, but I'm, I'm especially curious if you could just help us understand your biography and how it led to this book project.
1: Yeah, thanks, Gannon. so until this book, I mainly I've been writing about um, Islam in the United States, focusing uh, on black Muslims and also Islam in the African diaspora. And this is really my first uh, book that um, attempts to play in the uh, arena of Arab American and Midwestern history and uh, so these are both you know areas that I was you know I I, uh, I had read around in them but I, I hadn't uh, you know uh, taken these subjects as a graduate student back in the 1990s uh, when I was getting my doctorate so um, so it was so it was an area of growth and it did end up um, Becoming very personal because I realized that the stories that my Syrian Lebanese grandmother told me as she helped to raise me in Mount Vernon, Illinois, she was like my second mother, uh, they gave me some of the most important questions that I used to write this, to research and write this book. I think. You know, my my granny was a very proud of her Midwestern roots. She was a she was a woman of the country and of the city. I mean, she grew up in a very small town in Southern Illinois, but she went to Saint Mary's College right next to Notre Dame University, where she met my grandfather, who was who was recruited out of Drumright, Oklahoma, to play for Newt Rockney at Notre Dame. You know, I mean, you don't get you know a better Midwestern story than that. But so I, I she talked about all of her visits to her cousins in Iowa. Actually, she's pronounced it Iowa. And in my family, Missouri was Missouri. And, uh, and, and, and she, she, she went to uh, Maharajans or festivals in Terre Haute, Indiana. And of course she went to college in South Bend. And so I, I knew that she was part of this social circle of, um, of Syrian and Lebanese people of arabic speaking Syrian and Lebanese people who were both extremely proud of their american of making it in america you know the usually the sons and daughters of immigrants but also still very very proud of their arab heritage and and so i um so so many of the questions that i asked about the relationship of of Syrian Muslims to um, to to the Midwest was about uh, their relationship to place. I really want to bring out a sense of place and see, you know the Midwest is another and this and its cities and countryside are another are characters in a lot of ways in this book uh, because they were they were real they were living entities for granny, and she shared that love of the region with me. So that was, that was part of it. Now, the other, the other uh, thing, uh, I, I begin the book with a story uh, that she told me about some relatives who would uh, never go to church. And I started to wonder as I did, I never thought about this. Uh, it's odd. Uh, I, I sort of, I should have thought about it, but until I really started researching, uh, this topic, I hadn't thought about it. And I began to wonder if some of my own relatives were Muslim, uh, I got very close to discovering a firm connection but in the end all I can do is speculate about that. In uh most of my family is uh on the Arab side is Christian. But I I knew from the I knew from the research that um that they shared so much of the same culture. In the end it did feel very personal. It felt like I was uh, unearthing the stories of uncles and aunties and grandmothers and grandfathers, you know, I very much felt connected to, the, to, the, to, to their stories and to their lives.
0: Yeah, and I, it, it, it comes through in the book as well. I mean, it, it, it's, it's certainly scholarship, it's research, but it, there's also sort of a, a bit of memoir that's sort of sprinkled in throughout, which I think adds sort of a, a nice personal touch as you read this. So I feel like I'm following you in your research as you were going through this process. Well, I guess, I, you know, let's just start at the beginning of your book, your first chapter Uh, takes us to South Dakota, which is is probably not a region that many listeners might initially associate with Syrians or Muslims or any sort of religious and ethnic diversity. But your book is overwhelmingly focused on the Midwest. And in fact, you're making a case here for sort of turning over these stereotypes. Um, We move from South Dakota to North Dakota, Iowa, Indiana, and Michigan, really throughout the whole region. And I guess my first question is, What initially brought Syrian uh, migrants to the American Midwest in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? What opportunities were they hoping to find uh, by establishing themselves in this region?
1: Well, you you know, uh, I've learned um, by reading Midwest history that some historians of the Midwest um, sort of uh, doubt the, uh, the regional approach. But uh, boy, if the if the lives of these Syrian and Lebanese Muslims don't prove that the uh, Midwest exists as a region, I don't know what does, um, because because one of the it, it became very clear to me that one of the uh, pull factors uh, for them was that the Midwest um, as and I you tell me if this is your impression, Camden, but you know from during the Gilded Age in the late 1800s until World War one is an economic powerhouse for the United States. The link the linking of um, increase in agricultural production both in grains and livestock and the ability to transport that livestock using refrigerated uh, cars, uh, railroad cars and and is completely connected. To um, to the um, proliferation of industrial uh, jobs along the Great Lake region, there can you know it, we have we have expansion of capital going on through uh, in part through seizing of Native American lands and farming those lands, okay, but also through great investment in um, infrastructure, in particular the railroads, and so you know the. So many immigrants, not just Syrian and Lebanese immigrants, were coming to the Midwest at the time because this is where the opportunities in agriculture, industry, and in entrepreneurial activity were. So they came for the same reason that other people did. And they were attracted to the Dakotas because, you know, in in the very late 1800s, the federal government canceled its treaties with the Lakota and other native peoples seized uh, that land and put it in production, making North Dakota at one time the biggest wheat producer in the entire country, you know, and uh, and so they came to be they came to get that land and for this purpose, they were uh, accepted as white people. It's very, you know, that, that's something we might want to talk about in terms of what their racial identity, because it, it was um, sometimes they're white adjacent, sometimes they're not white. It depends on when and where. But for this purpose, they get to, they get to either um, get that land, they prove up what's called proving up for their homestead claim, 160 or more acres, either for free or for a very small amount of money. And so the allure of free land is very, and that's particularly attractive to many of these people who had grown up as peasants in rural Syria, or what today are Lebanon and Syria. And so the idea that, I mean, they were lucky to have 40 acres back in, you know, back in the Bekaa Valley. So they're going to get 160 acres. That's very attractive. Then the other thing was they had these, they developed along the railways, they developed networks of peddling and um, supply systems where they would set each other up they would loan each other money and goods and they had a whole economic network of peddling and so they could so they could, they had opportunities for peddling along the railways and then of course there was the you know all the industrial jobs i mean in 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 indiana's largest employer back in the early 1900s the 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 Haskell and Barker Railroad Car Factory in Michigan City, Indiana, perhaps employed as many as 700 Arabic-speaking people. And they recruited them in part because John Barker thought he might be able to prevent unionization because they spoke Arabic and their English wasn't very good. And he wanted to keep a very diverse workforce, thinking that ethnic and racial division might decrease the uh, threat of unionization so you can see how even that is again another story right at the heart of midwestern history now i know it's part of u.s history too but this was you know what we affectionately call the rust belt this was it something had to rust this was the powerhouse of the united states at the time and that's that's why they that's why they came
0: yeah and that it was so interesting even as i was reading your book it was just connecting it to the the just the previous episode of, of, of heartland history when Molly Rosen is also arguing that essentially this time period that you're looking at, is, it's also a focus of hers, which is when the sort of actual terminology of Midwest is really coming of age. And it is this this nexus of new economic forces of, you know, more commercially focused agriculture meets increased industrialization. Um, and, and really, that's the case for what makes the Midwest uh, with all its fuzzy boundaries, um, you know, discernible. Uh, and, and you do such a great job of articulating then to, to, to what you just said, right? I mean, this notion that, you know, the Syrian migrants are, in fact, a, a Midwestern history uh, during this time period as well only makes the case of stronger sort of cohesive bonds. And, and as you track the network uh, that eventually establishes amongst these migrants as well, you, you do start to see an outline of maybe what is a Midwestern region as well yeah literally, you literally I mean they by
1: by um, by rail and then by road, they their um personal relationships, their tourism, their um, religious visitations where they'll go and, and visit each other's congregations or they'll they'll bury one another. when they die, they'll come very long distances to 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 be at someone's funeral. Um, the uh, whom they marry, You know and where those people are from uh the all of these human connections really animate or illustrate what is they overlap with what what is the federal
0: census track of the midwest i want to go back to a comment you just made uh about sort of the the in between you know the syrian migrants seem to be living in sort of a perpetual liminal space um in the midwest which was the identity uh, uh, that others wanted to give them seemed to be very much in question. Uh, You note that sort of racial identity or or how white they were was in flux. Religious background um, came with uh, as well. Sort of this sort of fluctuating acceptance into society as well. And essentially Syrian migrants were both accepted and excluded at different times. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, that and maybe reflect on how the Syrian experience in the Midwest relates to uh, some of these larger stories of immigration and, and the immigrant experience in the region?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the region and the country were hungry for labor uh, in the late 1800s. And so, you know, so you had massive my, my uh, immigration from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe, but also from the Mediterranean region, from the Eastern Mediterranean about half a million Syrians, uh, and that would be Ottoman Syrians, and so that would include today what we would refer to as Jordanians, Palestinians, Lebanese, and Syrians came to the Americas um, before 1915 about a hundred thousand of them or so to the United States then, then you know more actually went to Latin America than came to uh, came to uh, the United States and Canada. But um, the majority of them were Christian, uh, but the Midwest was a bit unusual in that in certain places in the Midwest, we had, um, we had much larger numbers or percentages of Muslims among the, uh, among the people who came. Now, as they came, they came, some of them landed, you know, in New York. Others of them came, they crossed the border at um, Canada and Mexico. And, you know, these borders, how you come into the United States is always a very, is a first test of whether or not you qualify, you know, uh, potentially to become a citizen. Because, of course, only those who are white, you know, are allowed by U.S. law to become naturalized citizens, right? Right. I mean, the, uh, and um, and so um, so especially in the in the um, right, we have we have the beginnings of exclusion in the 1880s with the Chinese Exclusion Act. OK, but it's not clear whether or not Syrians um, are white. And <clears throat> so at, so in in um, eight in 1909, the Department of Commerce and Labor issues an opinion that says you know what syrians are not white so stop your naturalization process gives the local courts because naturalization ceremonies occur at you know at, at local courts they don't they don't go to one you know and and so there becomes there's this real dispute in many places between the courts in the midwest and the federal marshals and those who are trying to um, to enforce this new rule that Syrians aren't white. And in many cases, in places like Cedar Rapids or Sioux Falls, local officials say, wait a minute, these people have already been here. They've proved up on their land claims, you know. Um, yeah, you know, this really hits the homesteaders hard because if they're not eligible for citizenship, then they can't actually uh, take their land patent, the deed to their land, right? So, um, so, so they, so legally, um, but, but in 1915, the Syrian uh, community organizes and raises a lot of money um, across the United States to fight this, and in the Dow case. Um, uh, Dow, um, Dow, the f- a federal court rules that Syrians are indeed eligible for citizenship. They are white people. This was a this is a dream of <laughs> many of the Syrians. Interestingly, though, some of the Christians in the, in places like Michigan City um, or in Sioux Falls say, "Hey, by the way." Yet we're white, but the Muslims, they call them Turks. Um, um, they're not. So at this very early point, we see how, um, how religion, um, and this won't surprise many of your listeners who are familiar with the way in which, for example, Jews were declared not to be Germans because of the nature of, because Judaism was a race. Not a but still it, it's Judaism is more than a race. It's also a, uh, a a religion. And they what we see is that religion and race sometimes in US history as well as in global modern history, are coterminous. They're the same thing at times. And so the, the, the in Michigan City, Indiana, for example, the Christians get Syrian Christians get privileges. That the Syrian Muslims don't—they're still called Turks up until uh, World War One in the newspaper, and they have to sue in order to have access to the beach there on Michigan City on Lake Michigan, and but after World War One they win that suit, so um, so so by the 1920s we have a lot of Muslims who at least are uh, Syrian Muslims who are legally white now legal whiteness is not the same thing as social whiteness and so um there is throughout this time um deep discrimination going on against people of arab descent it is um who by and large want to be on the white side of the color line but who can't always it just it's it very much depends and um I mean, when the Ku Klux Klan, the second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan, sweeps across the Midwest, and Indiana becomes its biggest state, but it really is popular throughout the region. Um, uh, uh, Syrians sometimes become the target of the Klan, and many uh, Syrians and Lebanese at that point, some people are referring to themselves as Lebanese as well, they become very, very scared of, of racial violence.
0: Yeah, and it, you know, you, you go into sort of the nuance of that, of, of the competing claims for who gets to decide whiteness or not, right? I mean, you have a federal court that's making, you have federal jurisdictions trying to make rules, local jurisdictions who might be competing against and or agreeing. Then, I mean, you bring in like editorials from local newspapers of people who are arguing with all of them or <laughs> individually them. So it's, it struck me how I mean, it's it's interesting research work, but it's also, again, sort of this perpetual liminal space of not knowing where you stand at any given point, depending on who is trying to define if you're white enough or if you are, uh, you know, sort of um, to be accepted religiously or racially.
1: Yeah. And that's what I had. You know, one of the dominant themes in, in Arab American history has been, well, they attempted to blend in as much as they could, and to assimilate in such a way that they wouldn't bring attention to their difference. But you know, this—the story of Syrian Muslims—completely contradicts that. And that was one of the great discoveries that I felt like I made. Um, you uh, and, and this won't come as a surprise to many of the students of Midwest history, um, who might be listening to this podcast, but just like other Midwesterners, you know, whether we're talking about Scandinavian holiness practitioners, you know, in the Dakotas, or, you know, uh, or um, Ashkenazi Jews um, throughout the region, the their ethnic religious community making, which oftentimes revolved around the make, the building or the establishment of a religious congregation, became one of the primary pathways toward assimilation. Assimilation didn't mean getting rid of all of your non white Anglo-Saxon Protestant identities. Assimilation meant building enough power as a community to be able to participate in a region in which there were different ethnic religious groups in public space, taking up public space, uh, networking with one another, marrying one another, you know, and, and one of the reasons why I, I I kind of come off in this book as a Cedar Rapids exceptionalist, that is that things seem to have been particularly good for Syrian Muslims in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I think it's because the Bohemians or the um or the Czechs and the Slovaks paved the way there for having a very strong non-Anglo identity being part of public culture in Cedar Rapids. And um and so uh and so it wasn't. Um, uh, so when other people from Cedar Rapids were looking at these Syrian Muslims who built a mosque there and were very public about their Muslim and their Arab identities, you know, so well we know that we know that you can be completely American, patriotic, loyal, you know, and also you know. Um, Love your kolaches, and I mean, or in this, you know, or, or sorry, that's I'm mixing ethnicities now. You know, your your hubes, your your flatbread, um, you know, and and also sing your songs and recite your poetry, whether it's Bohemian poetry or Arabic poetry, and dance your dances and uh, pray your prayers, you know. So uh, and and learn your language. You know, Cedar Rapids was a was a center, you know, of Czech language study. Uh, in the United States. And that's exactly so. They also, in Cedar Rapids, many of the, the Arab Muslim kids would study Arabic, you know, at the mosque. So uh, the, this isn't a way of of somehow resisting Americanization. This is what it means to be an American in the Midwest at that time.
0: Well, uh, World War I holds a prominent spot in the lives of those who examine your book, of, of course, with many Americans um, living during this time period. Of course, it's an important world event, uh, but what made the Great War so significant politically and culturally for uh, Syrian migrants?
1: It couldn't have been more important because you remember that um, on the other side of World War One uh, um, were the uh, were German and Ottoman Turkish forces, and for the most part, um, Arabic-speaking people very much wanted to be free from Ottoman rule so that they could establish uh, free and independent Arab states or, or even perhaps one Arab, one United Arab nation. And the, Midwesterner, uh, the Midwestern, Syrian and Lebanese who were here, for the most part, they, they especially the Muslims, very much supported um, this idea. And so they were very excited about the possibility of freedom for the land of their birth. However, they were cut off, as were most people during World War I. It was simply too dangerous to cross the Atlantic uh, during World War One, And it represented a turning point in that they did have the opportunity to serve in the American expeditionary forces or the, the U.S. Army in World War I. And if they did so, U.S. law said that they could then become citizens of the United States. And so some, even though they were technically classified, if they weren't already citizens of the United States and they hadn't filed what are called their first papers, their first citizenship papers, some alien enemies volunteered to go fight in the war, for and they had two good reasons to do it. One, they wanted the land of their birth to be free, and two, they wanted to be U.S. citizens. So, so they, so, so World War One represented an enormous opportunity. You know, there, there was worry because they were Ottoman citizens, some many of them, and the federal government uh, got worried that maybe they would be uh, uh, spies, or you know, that they would. Um, it turns out that. Even just a little bit of investigation on the part of the, the the federal government, they turned all their attention to German Americans, whom they, of course, persecuted. The federal, I mean, in places like you know South Dakota and Iowa, I mean, uh, really inc- incredibly sad stories of sending Germans, for example, to uh, uh, to Fort Leavenworth. Uh, you know, so many people their their lives were snuffed out, or that or their were complete, or their uh, livelihoods were ruined um, because of this. this. This story did not obtain when it came to Syrian and Lebanese Muslims. Instead, really, World War I is this turning point where even in places where they're considered to be people of color, like Michigan City, Indiana, where they're still called Turks, after they serve in the uh, U.S. Armed Forces, or some of them serve, they they begin to win court cases against their discrimination you know they've proven themselves and um and 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 that's a a deep you know this is so this is a very important moment and it's after world war one as many of them decide to stay and and to remain in the united states um uh, that they begin to um, invest heavily in building their community institutions.
0: Yeah, absolutely actually that's great segue to my next question, which is exactly about those community institutions right which really began to proliferate, as you say after World War one um, these these as you say ethnic religious congregations. What did those congregations look like in many of the places that you discuss throughout your book and, and how did the establishment of those congregations? Help to really establish larger networks uh, of uh, of Syrian Muslims across the region.
1: Yeah. So, the so if if you would go back into the historical record and expect to see, you know, um, a modern um, Saudi Arabian um, style uh, mosque, you, you you will be disappointed. That is not what they look like. They oftentimes look like they look very similar. To churches and other kinds of religious congregations, they might feature, um, you know, a, a, a crescent above the above the mosque, or they might have. Um, so you might get a crescent. You, you you might see some architectural features that would stand up, maybe a dome, um, a subtle one, um, maybe a subtle minaret, like in which looks more like a chimney. But in uh in Michigan City, Indiana, in Ross, North Dakota though, the mosque looked just like a granary, an outbuilding. You couldn't tell the difference between it and the and and um you know and a regular an irregular farm building. So or you know, agricultural, not someplace you'd live, someplace you'd store something in. So um so they 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 blended in in, in Cedar Rapids, they actually put the mosque in a residential neighborhood and um the, the city made everybody, you, you had to line your house up or whatever building you were building with the street. So they, they, could, they couldn't align it in the direction of Mecca, which is the direction in which Muslims um, pray, um, make their prayers. So you, they had to, <laughs> so inside the building, they just had to be very clear which direction to point the bodies in. Uh, but I mean, that's the kind of, you know, in other words, these were institutions That were being disciplined, if you will, by US law. These are, these are, this is when Islam becomes institutionally a US religion because, like other religions, it is a nonprofit organization which is um, given its nonprofit status by the Secretary of State of the state in which it's established and it's governed by federal tax code, right? And so, so where it doesn't matter what your particular, you know, uh, belief and practice system are. There are certain things that become common to, uh, that are common to religious congregations in the United States because they are, uh, uh, they, they are legal institutions.
0: Yeah, and um, really our community building and, and how much of that is, because you also talk about Ross, North Dakota, which is such an interesting sort of side story of how that community eventually begins to sort of fade away or fall apart. Right. And sort of is forgotten for the most part for, for a long period of time. Um, is it something that the, that the communities that are large enough to sustain a critical mass of, of of Syrian Muslims?
1: Yeah. So at the time, and if you think about well, and even think about um, first of all, you you hit on something important, which is the word critical mass. So a lot of these are ethnic and religious. After 1965, um, when the Immigration and Naturalization Act um, ushers in much greater immigration from Africa and Asia and Latin America, the diversity and the number of Muslims or immigrants who happen to be Muslim goes way up. And it eclipses the, Muslim, the small number of Muslims that were here. Remember that the National Origins Act of 1924 cut off immigration from most of the places from which Muslims could come, right in in um, Africa and Asia. And so, so after after the 1965 uh, bill, which is part of the whole civil rights movement, changes that, we see that the. Um, in sometimes the ethnic particularity of a mosque, say it's Arab or uh, Bangladeshi or Bengali, it begins to fade and it becomes much more multi ethnic. So the it, it, and it, it reminds me a bit of Roman Catholicism. You know, in the eighteen hundreds, all the parishes generally you had your Polish parish, you had your Italian parish, you had your Irish parish. You know, but nowadays, of course, you know, all of these white ethnic groups generally share the same, you know, the same, same parish.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and um, that, that's, that's become more true of, of, of Muslim congregations after 1965. But at this point, we see a very strongly Arab, you know, very ethnically Arab um, Muslim congregations in the Midwest. So they established critical mass between World War One and World War II. But then World War II is another turning point. It's massively important to, um, in, to North Dakota because unlike other places, North Dakota, I think, double check me on this, but I think it got the fewest number of federal military contracts of any of the states, of the existing states. And um, it, you know, and the and it did not. The state did not industrialize in the way that other states industrialized. And at the same time, you know, you had continual problems in the short grass prairies of you know western North Dakota in um, uh, fighting off drought. And re, you know, and relying on, and so many of the by world by by the 1930s, it was already clear to the Muslim farmers and many other farmers that they should be grazing that land, not you know planting wheat there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so you have a kind of you know the the agriculture can't sustain. There's neither an industrial base nor is there an agricultural base to sustain the community. And so people from there. The other thing to remember about North Dakota is, even though you know we associate the Great Depression with the stock market fall in 1929 and the 1930s, we have to remember there was already an agricultural depression in North Dakota in the 1920s, after World War I, because wheat prices, just the, the bottom fell out. And so already in the 1920s, we have a very difficult you know, environment for wheat farmers. And, and and so these, um, I don't know if that, you know, uh, perhaps this is only of interest to Midwest historians. I have no idea, you know, but I mean, one of the things that I associate with Midwest history is agricultural history. So um, so I'm going for it. Um, it wasn't that people in Ross weren't interested in Islam. It's just they did not have the critical mass of people to sustain over the long term a congregation there. And, and what we found or what we find instead is that some of those people did go back to the Middle East, to the Eastern Mediterranean, others of them moved in the Midwest and so many moved to Detroit, which be, really became the capital of the Muslim Midwest be, between World War I and World War II and certainly cemented its place as sort of the most vibrant and populated Muslim center in the Midwest after World War II. And, and we, have to, we have to trace that to the automobile revolution. You know, that's really where that opens up all kinds of opportunities. So if you can't make it farming in Western North Dakota, well, you can go get a job on the line. You know, and Henry Ford is paying, you know, $5 a day or whatever it was.
0: You know, you call you call Detroit the the beating the beating heart of the Syrian Muslim community in in the American Midwest, um, and and even in the way you've structured uh, uh, your book, I mean, you follow individuals who are coming from those communities and and are landing in Detroit. Um, I guess you know you've talked about some of the economic factors, but what does what does the reality of this influx between those interwar years really mean to the city of detroit when you have this huge vibrant community of syrian yeah
1: so and it's it's both it's arab american or syrian american christians and muslims in detroit it it is Mm -hmm. you know you have a much more you know all kinds of religious diversity that's much more representative because your population is so much larger now so that you you have you know the scene is much more representative of the kind of diversity you would find in the eastern mediterranean you know, in, in, if you're out in Western North Dakota or, you know, in Sioux Falls, you, you, many times you have to work to try to um, set aside any differences you might have, because strategically you want to choose a, form, a unity so that you can uh, fight to establish your place in the society. In Detroit, on the other hand, there's enough of you so, you know, that you can afford uh, in many ways, to to have disunity, and you have diversity. And so you find, you know, it, it, it's important to keep in mind in my book, one of the things I, I really emphasize, one of the characters uh, of my book, her name is um, Aliyah Ogdi Hassan, and she moves from, at the age of 15, she's basically married off by her mother to an auto worker in the Detroit area, in Dearborn, and we follow her story through the uh, 1920s, um, and the 1930s, um, Depression-era Detroit. Uh, and um, she, she, what was surprising about to me about her story at this point is you have no idea, based on what she's going through in the 20s and 30s, that after, by the 1960s, she's going to become one of the most important Muslim um, Arab American women leaders in history. You know, uh and and so, in a way, I try to try to trace back and say, well what did she you know did she try to take did she have anything from Sioux Falls or was Sioux Falls just this kind of you know um bad hometown that she had to leave behind to make it big in the big city and And I try to show how actually her upbringing in Sioux Falls gave her a lot of the resources that she would later use to first to um, make it through a very bad marriage. Um, and then also, you know, to, to become a leader, uh, she's an incredibly bright, uh, poet and organizer and political and religious thinker. So we get to see we get to see um, Detroit, a side of Detroit that sometimes people won't associate with Muslims because many people think that Muslims, many Americans associate Muslims with religion as in like they're the most religious group. Of course, Muslims are just human beings like uh, other human beings. And there are many non-religious Muslims <laughs> and so uh, who do not practice their religion. So um, so we get to see um, Aliyah of Hassan, you know, going out for a drink, dancing the Black Bottom uh, in in Detroit, you know, saving up her pennies so that she and her girlfriends can go out once, you know, a, a week or once on the weekends. Um, and enjoy themselves uh, and so I wanted to show that you know that you could you, you could still be uh, fully Arab in your and you know and and be an Arab neighbor and go and and hang out with other Arabs but that but that you also are making a life that is oftentimes even in that big city where you can afford to just hang out with other Arabic speaking or other Arab people there were, uh, Arab Americans, um, like Aliyah Ogdi Hassan, who are, you know, who, who are reach, who are, um, who, who have friends across all kinds of social, religious, and cultural lines. So that's part of the vibrancy of a Detroit, is that it gives you, by, by really paying attention to individuals in Detroit, um, you get to see, uh, Arab American Muslims in their full diversity, rather than just sort of thinking of them as one certain type of person.
0: I, I'm curious, you know, what should listeners of this podcast, Heartland History, take away from Muslims of the Heartland? Well,
1: I hope that they take away, especially if, if the Midwest is more than just an intellectual curiosity, but is a place um, in which they find themselves a place about whose future they care, um, that, they, that, that they have yet another a story to add to the stories they already have that prove that our region has never been all white and all Christian, that we have always been diverse, and that we do a disservice to our region when we think of our history in monotones whether that be religious or racial monotones. And and I hope that it inspires people to think about what we could become because there is no doubt that in this particular historical moment, we see some of the demons of our past um, so much a part of um, our public life together. Um, It, it reminds me for those of us who are, who have paid attention and who know about the history of the Klan, in in the Midwest in the 1920s, there are so many moments of today's public discourse that remind me of the religious and racial and ethnic, um, intolerance and hatred and violence of that era. And, uh, what I hope this story does really is in, um, at the very least, even if it doesn't change, uh, some people's mind that it gives hope and and some strength to those of us who want to fight for a heartland that loves all its people, um, with all their differences.
0: It's that's so thoughtfully put and, and, and beautifully put. I, I think it was your Twitter account at one point <laughs> you had a great comment. You said so, that, you know, sort of erasing uh, the Midwest or, or claiming that the Midwest was sort of inherently white and inherently Christian is not historical reality, but it's, it's bad ideology. I believe
1: that. And, and, you know, I think, you know, this is obviously, it's personal for me because uh, part of writing this book, I mean, I'm, I'm not a spring chicken, but you still learn things. <laughs> even, even when you're older, And I think I knew in my gut or in my bones that I was part of the Midwest. I always thought of this as my home. And, you know, and I've been lucky enough to get a job here and to be back closer to home. And, um, uh, but I'm not sure. I think I sort of believed some of the had imbibed some of the narratives that that said that I was a brown intervention in a white land. It turns out no, that I am just another expression of this region's uh, black, white, brown, and indigenous you know um, and indigenous strands you know and and so that was a very powerful experience that my that that to 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 come to understand by writing a history that my own presence in this region is not so atypical. In fact, there's um there's a lot that I share in common with people uh, across our our differences but united by um but, but united by our shared um investment in this place.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, before we wrap things up, and I know I've kept you for quite a while here, I'm curious if you're willing to share with our listeners what you might be working on next. Do you have any projects uh, in the works?
1: Yeah, this is a very busy year for me. I don't know what's gotten into me. Um, but you can, tell, you can probably tell this, this, this book inspired me <laughs> so deeply. So, um, so I have a book coming out in, um, in June, um, which is more a book of photographs than anything else, it's, uh, but it's on the history of Arab Americans in Indianapolis, um, the city where I've worked since 2005. And along with that book, I am um, WFYI TV, which is our public television station, is going to broadcast an hour long documentary that I've executive produced on the history of Arab Americans in indianapolis so um so i'm so i'm really excited for both of these um projects
0: well we'll, we'll keep an eye out for those and, and and hopefully we can promote those in the future and maybe have you back to talk about them that'd be great absolutely uh, uh edward thank you so much for joining me today i loved reading the book i really enjoyed this conversation um again for the listeners the book is muslims of the heartland how syrian immigrants made a home in the american midwest published by New York University Press. Get your hands on a copy at your local bookstore or on the New York University Press website. Edward, thank you so much. Thank you,
1: Camden. It's my pleasure.